So in upscale restaurants, not that I have been to them, but uh, so I have heard, the, the kitchen usually has a chef's table where the, the chef himself or herself uh, hosts special guests. I, I think you can pay a lot of money to get there, but ordinarily this is for the guests of the chef. These guests, guests get to see how, because it's in the kitchen, they get to see how the food is prepared, but also sit with the chef to eat and enjoy the meal with the one who prepared it. It's a privilege to sit at this table because the commander of this domain owns it and invites people to it. And if we we think about that idea of the chef's table, well, we can note a few interesting things, at least I think interesting things. First, you can't just waltz up to that table. There are some prerequisites, namely being on the list of those who are invited by the chef. And then second, when you get to eat at the special table, well, the thing is, in no way would you be thinking that you're the one doing the work there. The focus is not on your action, but the chef's who has set this table for you and is feeding you. And your contribution is receiving, not doing. (laughs) Now, in this series of sermons, we continue looking at God's ordinary means of grace, those outward ordinances of word, sacrament, and prayer that God uses to apply Christ and his benefits to his people. And we've seen that the read and the preached word is the power of God to address his people. Now considering how the sacraments are his power to assure his people of his promises. And the sacraments contain that same message and blessings as God's word. So that we might hear and hold the word and its gospel. Baptism is the sacrament that admits us into the visible church, sealing our initiation in Christ, effectively granting its blessings from Christ by faith. And now, tonight, we come to think about the Lord's Supper. The sacrament, not initiation, but our continuation in Christ. Like the chef's table, it first has some prerequisites to come. One, Well, you need to be baptized. Since our earliest writings as Christians even have said that no one can come to the Lord's table unless they are baptized. For example, one of our most ancient documents, this is just a a point of trivia that I hope is helpful and interesting, uh, is a letter called the Didache, which was from the first centuries. uh, And it's kind of an outline of church order in some way. And it states... Let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist, so your Lord's Supper, except those who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For the Lord has also spoken concerning this, do not give what is holy to dogs. Interesting application of that verse. But second, though, so we the first prerequisite is, well, you need to be baptized. Second, as we thought about when we worked through 1 Corinthians and we're in chapter 11, you need to make a profession of faith to eat this meal. You need to discern the Lord's body to receive his supper. And so this meal is for the recognized 
people of God, accepted into membership as professing believers. So like the chef's table, there are some prerequisites to come. But then second, the other similarity is, like the chef's table, our focus shouldn't be on the one who sets this table and gives us... um, Sorry, our focus needs to be on the one who sets our table and gives us our food, not pretending that this is uh, this meal is our work for the Lord. Right? Too many evangelicals, I think, mistakenly turn the sacraments into our performances rather than God's promises. Something that we do for the Lord rather than something that He does. For us, baptism and the Lord's Supper are things God does for and to His people, not something that we bring to Him. Although certainly we remember Christ, it is a memorial meal, and we remember Christ as we take the supper and do it in remembrance of Him, still the focus is not on our act of remembering as if this is a work for us to perform. Rather, we remember Christ in the supper, precisely because our focus is on what he is presently providing and doing for us as we eat. And so as we've usually done in this series, we'll take our lead from our shorter catechism. So question 96 says, The Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein the giving by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is shown forth. And the worthy receivers are not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood and all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Now, this sermon is going to take up roughly the first half of that answer uh, concerning what the supper is as bread and wine showing forth Christ's death. And then when we come back next week, the next sermon, we'll think about the second half regarding how we receive Christ's body and blood and benefits in the supper. So then our main point tonight, the main point is that the Lord's Supper is a meal testifying to Christ's sufficiency as our Savior. The Lord's Supper is a meal testifying to Christ's sufficiency as our Savior. And we're going to think about this in three points. A set supper, a sacrificial supper, and a sufficient supper. So first, a set supper. And and the first task here is is to reflect upon how how the supper is God's work for us rather than our work before him. And I think the main reason to consider this topic is to see the supper truly as God's gift to his people. There is a long history, especially in America and Scotland and, and to some degree in the, in the Netherlands, of Christians avoiding the table for a number of reasons. In the Netherlands, usually the cause is because people, so I'm told, 
I don't have first-hand experience. People feeling unworthy to come to the table, even till later in life, which misses the point of this meal, that it is for strengthening unworthy sinners who need God's help. In America and Scotland, though, uh, a higher level of experientialism in the understanding of the supper is the kind of background for this avoidance. There's uh, often a call to reflect so forcefully upon our own sin in examining ourselves that Christians buckle under the weight of feeling unassured in their sin. So, So because the supper at times has been celebrated so infrequently, the call to this task intensifies, leaving Christians pretty raw in their experience of the supper. And so we think we can't do this and would prefer to avoid more frequent instances of the supper. Further, though, the the intensity of the call to reflect upon Christ's death as the the main thing, as essentially as a funeral meal, also makes the supper into a, a pressurized moment. Have you thought about it effectively enough? Leaving more Christians saying that they could not bear to receive the supper more frequently. And that's a line I've heard. But I wonder if if this sort of outlook reflects the supper as a means of grace, wherein Christ applies himself and his benefits to us. For the heavy laden, we should rejoice at what Christ does to comfort us, not turn them into more burdens. And so let's think about how the passage where Christ institutes the Lord's Supper helps us. So Matthew 26 recounts the the last Passover that Jesus was celebrating in his earthly ministry, using it to institute his supper to remain as the form of the Passover that would continue in perpetuity for his, his church. Because, do you note, the Passover was... Forever, and we'll see how it's still in place to some degree as we progress here. But uh, the setup and execution is really interesting and helps us take away a fundamental point, actually, for the Lord's Supper. So the setup is in verses 17 to 19. And Matthew wrote, Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. So what we see, though, is that the disciples set up meal. Maybe that doesn't really seem that striking. But it is the disciples that arrange the place and seemingly the elements. But let's, let's jump down to, to verses 26 and 27. Because then we come to this place where it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what we have here is that Jesus is the one directing the meal. Even though the disciples had laid out the meal, Jesus is the host. It is his table. Even though the disciples had arranged the elements, Jesus is the one spreading the table, inviting people to eat a holy supper. And so, if we can connect this to us today, though, just like we've seen that Christ truly preaches through his ordained officers as they preach, and Christ truly baptizes as his ordained officers administer the water, now we see that even though his ordained officers set and institute the table, Jesus is the one who hosts the Lord's Supper. Both at its first event and still today. And so this is a set supper where we are at table with the divine host who brings us to eat with him. And that brings us to our second point. A sacrificial supper. A sacrificial supper. So we've seen that Jesus himself is the one who hosts the meal, both the first time and still today. Like like getting to sit at the chef's table with the chef himself, it is a special privilege to come to the meal that he provides, that he gives. And now we need to think a bit more about the occasion of the Lord's Supper because it was situated in the Passover. So Benjamin Warfield was one of America's uh, best theologians. Uh, He pointed out that the occasion of the Passover ideally suited Christ's purposes for instituting his new covenant meal. Uh, Unsurprisingly, since Christ is is the same God who instituted both meals, uh, both ordinances are feasts. That makes it ideally suited. Moreover, central to both is eating the lamb. We, we should not miss, too, that both meals were ultimately about the same Lamb of God. As Warfield summarized the over, the Lamb that was slain and on the table at this feast was just the typical representative, meaning the, meaning the, the type for signifying Christ in his work, of the Lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the world and in whose hands is the book of life. What is done in the two feasts is therefore precisely the same thing. Jesus Christ is symbolically fed upon in both. We saw earlier in in this series uh, the point from Westminster Confession 8.6 that although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ until after his incarnation, yet... Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages since the world began in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices. So just as we receive Christ through the new covenant's means of grace, word, sacrament, and prayer, Old Testament believers received him through their means of grace, 
the Passover being one of them. And so the Passover event certainly pointed ahead to Christ delivering us. It's probably clear enough, even in in the passage that we read, Exodus 12, Israelites spread the lamb's bloods on the lamb's blood on their doorposts, so that God would spare their firstborn from death. Death would pass by them if covered in the blood of the lamb. The lamb's blood turned away God's vengeance, and so the Passover included a sacrifice to protect them from condemnation. Another factor, though, is how God gave sacrificial meals to his people. So uh, another passage that's interesting in this respect, Leviticus 6 explains how after the priests would sacrifice an animal to the, to the Lord, they could eat it as their food. The sacrifice, so the act of sacrifice was to cover sin, but then the meal was God's provision for his people. Indeed, often the meal after the sacrifice is a sign that there is peace between the sacrifice's giver and its receiver. For for a sacrificial meal to happen at all then, a sacrifice has already been made and been accepted. And this is important because Protestants have long debated uh, Rome about the supper's sacrificial nature. So Rome, and even still in the Council of Trent, says this sacrifice, referring to the Mass, is truly propitiatory, meaning that in their observance of the Lord's Supper, the priest presents a sacrifice that newly turns away God's wrath. They appeal to how the ancient church referred to the supper as a sacrificial meal. And yet, what can we make of that? We, we've seen that the scripture portrays sacrificial meals not as something that itself turns away God's wrath, not as sacrifices in the meal, but as moments of communion because a sacrifice has already been accepted. And so we should understand the Lord's Supper and the ancient church explanation of it as a meal that celebrates peace between two parties because a previously offered sacrifice has made that peace between them. Namely, Christ's death has forever satisfied God's justice for the sin of those who trust in him. And so this meal that we call the Lord's Supper is a sacrificial supper that marks our reconciliation, acceptance, and communion with God, not because it is a sacrifice, but because of Christ's sacrifice. And that brings us to our final point, a sufficient supper. Sufficient supper. There is this one last crucial we need to think about how the Lord's Supper links to the Passover. 
Warfield again helpfully noted that Christ did not even replace the Passover with a, a new meal, but adapted the Passover to fit the present administration of God's kingdom in the new covenant. So when God said it's a statute forever, he meant it. Christ adapted it to be fitting for what would happen after his coming. So a simple question here helps us to see why Christ adjusted trappings for the supper best fits our situation in the new covenant. And that that question is, have you ever thought about what is not on the Lord's table? What if this if this supper was initiated, instituted in the context of the Passover? What isn't on our table when we eat it as the church? Now, likely our focus is typically on what the bread and wine are there to do. Rightly so. In the Lord's Supper's connection to the Passover, though. There's a really conspicuous absence on our table because the Passover centered around the the meat of a sacrificed lamb. Literal lamb meat is starkly missing from the Lord's table, leaving us with just bread and wine. Why? Why? Because whereas the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, so had to be repeatedly sacrificed, appearing constantly on the altar and constantly on the Passover table, God's true Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, has provided an everlastingly sufficient sacrifice that never needs repeating. And so we don't need a new one. We have... No lamb each time we eat the Lord's Supper because we have an effectual lamb who died on our behalf, permanently removing our sin from us and permanently making peace between God and his people on the basis of that one offering. And so when we come to the table, it's good to think about what's there and what has been to us in bread and wine. And it's good to think about what's not there. Because we need no new lamb. Ours stands forever in heaven to plead our case. We can repeatedly eat a sacrificial meal with the Lord without offering new propitiatory sacrifices because Christ has fully satisfied our debts before God. When we gather to eat this meal called the Lord's Supper, It is one of peace and communion. It always stems from and is based upon and looks back to Christ once and for all, death on the cross, from which it takes its efficacy. There, Jesus fully satisfied all that was needed, that we might always have forgiveness in God's sight. Now, Maybe you're thinking that all of this lines up well, but one thing is missing 
from that opening illustration about the chef's table. You get the, to watch the chef prepare the meal before you eat it when you're in the kitchen. But indeed, the thing is, we do watch the chef prepare the Lord's Supper before we eat it, every time we observe it. Because it's not a meal that stands on its own, but one in connection to the gospel. Because in the supper, we feast upon the gospel itself. Christ's meal of the Lord's Supper is prepared for us in the preaching of Christ himself. As he speaks through his pastors and then feeds through his pastors. And so the Lord's table is a sufficient supper because it lacks a new lamb, but contains Christ and his benefits received by faith to mark our peace with God through the everlasting gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful that um, when we come to your table these days, we do not need to eat meat of a sacrificed lamb. Because you have fully met all of our needs on that end in the Lord Jesus. All of the sustenance that we might ever need to be spiritually fed and nursed comes from the once for all offering of that lamb. And so we rejoice that we can come to a simple meal at a simple table and simply take a very little portion because you have filled us. You leave us full and all we need is to eat again of the same good news of Jesus Christ that he stands forever the one effective sacrifice to deal with all of our sins. He sets a table for us even in the midst of our foes even in the midst of our trials Jesus Christ prepares a table to feed his people and invites us to communion with him. We give thanks for this and ask that the message of it, even though we don't eat the seal of it, that we might still feast richly on Christ by the mouth of faith. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.